so I want to go back this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 5, from, really from verse 33, these three uh, paragraphs that uh, are uh, in the center of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And I wonder sometimes, uh, so I, I prepared this before the kind of ramping up of uh, the coronavirus stuff, um, so it's not directly related in any way, but it is directly related because it's God's Word, and uh, I hope that some of the application uh, will be real and, and relevant today. Uh, I hope that's true every week. But I do wonder sometimes what we're looking for from God as Christians uh, to inspire us in our faith. You know, you hear a lot of different things. Faith is kind of ordinary, and we want something to inspire it and make it great. You know, do signs and wonders, is that what we want? Or do we want to feel goosebumps uh, when we worship? Do we want more evidence of His love in our, in our day-to-day life, a better church experience, more enjoyment, an easier walk? There's lots of different things that we might want to, we think, inspire us in our Christian lives. But really, uh, we, have, we have all the inspiration available to us in the voice of Jesus. That, that's really where our inspiration and our foundation and our strength uh, and our development should come from as Christians. The risen, authoritative, committed, uh, astounding voice of Jesus Christ, the significance of what He says, His love, His example, and His redemptive atoning power. Uh, It's quite the qualification, isn't it, to listen to? Uh, And we have that. We all have that in in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why preaching from the Word is so central to us, whether that's one-to-one or whether it's from uh, a sermon or or whether it's reading or hearing, that the the Word of God and and the voice of Jesus Christ through His Word is hugely significant. I know that sometimes we think it's just all on paper, but how, how do I know more? How do I live more? How am I inspired by Him? We, we do need to recall and remind ourselves that it is in the inspired Word of God. It's a living Word. It's three-dimensional. It comes off the page, and it is brought, meaning is brought to us through the Holy Spirit, applying it to our lives. And uh, I do believe the inspiration will come from putting our discipleship into practice through obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word. And by, by living out what His love looks like in our lives, it means losing our lives for His sake. It means being crucified to self, and it means living for Christ. So, so in, 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 in today's circumstances, we remind ourselves that we are citizens of another kingdom, and we live accordingly, not carelessly, Uh, and not piously, and not selfishly, but we are citizens of Jesus Christ, and we are not to be conforming. You know, Romans 12 tells us that we don't conform to the pattern of this world. We are to be salt of the earth in this circumstance and in every circumstance we find ourselves in. And so, God, God speaking to us is incredibly practical always. It's never pious and distant and religious and kind of uh, non-practical ways. It's responding uh, to everyday life with extraordinary grace. That, that's what 
living as a Christian means for all of us. That's where it starts. It always is going to start with you, and it's going to start with me and with our heart and with our relationship with God, recognizing God's profoundly impossible different standard that He requires of us, that drive us to Him in faith and drive us to Him in radical Christian living. And if you ask the question, well, why am I, I wanted my faith to feel more real? That's where it will feel more real. That's where it will become more compelling, more beautiful, more courageous, and more crystal clear when we are walking in the footsteps of the Savior rather than any, anything kind of happening to us from the outside. So in this passage, there's three big areas where uh, it's easy uh, to ignore uh, Jesus. See, we often reimagine or we ignore or we reject how Jesus wants us to live. Uh, and that's what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing. They were taking Scripture and twisting it, turning it, making it easier to uh, live without reference to God in many ways. And it's easy for us to do the same, is to take away the impossibility and the standards of grace in our lives. Every, and what I mean by that is every day, every day. I'm not speaking about high days or significant other days, but in the, in the daily grind, taking grace and the application of grace into it. So there's, there's, three, there's, three, there's three paragraphs, so there's three sections, and I'm going to use three words, uh, truth and self and grace. So these are the three words that apply uh, as we consider uh, this. So the first section entitled in the, the Bible, or pulpit Bible, um, Pew Bible, page 810, is Oaths from verse 33, and that's 33 to 37. And uh, Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And there is, there is quite a lot of stuff in the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and uh, Deuteronomy about oaths. So in Deuteronomy 23, uh, hopefully that's, is that going to come up on the screen, Deuteronomy 23, uh, it says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. You'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So there, there was precedent for vows and, and vowing before the Lord in the Old Testament. Uh, but what was happening with the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day was they were, they, were, they were grading oaths. So they were saying some oaths you needed to keep, depending on the words you used, and other oaths you didn't need to keep. If you used God's name, well, you really needed to keep that oath. But if you used the temple, then you didn't need to use that oath. And, and God, uh, they were giving more weight to some of their words than other words, so that some of their words actually couldn't be trusted. And yet they were using oaths to give them a veneer of uh, truthfulness and responsibility. Uh, Jesus utterly and completely slams them. In his, seven, in, in, in his woes, the seven woes of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You swear by the gold of the temple, and you say it can't be broken, but then you swear by the And he just annihilates the fact that they are hypocritical and that their words are not trust. You know, they, to swear by the temple is nothing. To swear by the gold of the temple is binding. They were speaking with forked tongue, in other words. They were using oaths in a, in a way to allow themselves uh, to 
make promises or make vows they couldn't keep. I'm just going to broaden that. I'm not going to go into detail into the different oaths and and everything else that uh, we could do here, but the, the basic teaching of Jesus here is that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be known to be absolutely trustworthy and transparently honest. It's broadening out beyond simply the taking of oaths. You know, as it finishes there, you know, verse 37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Uh, uh, Why is that? That is because Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the revelation of the truth. Jesus holds the truth. Jesus is the truth. So if we are followers of Jesus, truth as it's revealed in him and in his uh, revelation of what the world is, but also particularly in salvation, uh, our lives are to be based on truth. Uh, You know from the very beginning that uh, the problems arose with Satan's lies, and he's called the father of lies. That's not insignificant. It's the complete opposite of God is God is truth and Satan is lies. And so we recognize uh, Satan as the father of lies. And ever since, lies have been damning and confusing and dividing and creating havoc in, in the world in which we live. Um, whether it's lies to gain popularity, uh, lying on your CV, lying to get acceptance, uh, hiding who we are um, in order to gain wealth or to gain some kind of advantage, Uh, at the very heart of your walk of faith and mine as Christians is that we are not liars, is that we tell the truth and that we live by the truth. And we all say, of course, that will impact how you live tomorrow and how I live tomorrow. We should be people who are known as people of the Word, people of our Word. Our Word is our bond. We can be trusted. So parents, you go home and uh, you don't make false promises to your kids in order to placate them, or promises you don't keep, saying you'll be somewhere and not turning up. Be people of your word. We'll make mistakes. Of course we'll make mistakes. But be known, be apologetic, seek forgiveness when we fail to keep our promises uh, in our lives. In, In our church relationships, there will only ever be Christian depth between us in our Christian lives if there's a trust and an on, a basic honesty between us. If, we, if you say one thing, if you speak with forked tongue in church with other Christians, if you say one thing but mean another, then you're hiding the reality. If you talk behind people's backs and a smile to their faces, uh, if you're saying you'll do something or be somewhere for, for another Christian, but you pull it easily and cheaply just because you, we can't be bothered, then it's because truth doesn't matter to us. And yet it's a, a, a truly fundamental part of our lives as Christians. In your workplace, what is your reputation in the workplace or in the student body or in the school? Or in, what is your reputation? Do you have a reputation for being known as a truth teller who's honest, even sometimes when it causes difficulties? Sensitive, yes, but truthful, honest, reliable, scrupulous, and when we say things, we don't, well, we don't need to swear in our granny's false teeth in order to be uh, known to be saying something that we'll keep to. We don't need to make oaths because our yes is our yes and our no is our no. We are people of integrity and honesty. That is the most practical uh, outworking of grace 
in our lives and will bring our faith alive. It's costly. We live in a society you would expect it to lie. It's absolutely natural. Expected to lie about your income, expected to lie in your tax return, expected to lie to get customers off your back. It's completely natural to lie. Lie about your abilities, lie about uh, uh, your character. To avoid conflict, to be popular, to progress in life. We are citizens of another king. Our life and our behavior uh, accordingly by grace is to be different. Sometimes we throw up our hands and say, I never have an opportunity to share my faith or to show that I'm a Christian. Guarantee. As we live by Christ and the cost of living by Christ with regard to the truth, we will have plenty of opportunities. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Anything else is from the father of lies and the self-interest that goes with that. Grace loves truth. And that is the reflection of the character and the person of Christ. But then the second section is retaliation. This is quite a radical section. Many of you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and so on. An eye for an eye. Uh, if we go Exodus uh, 23-25, that's uh, the Old Testament law. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, Exodus 21, 23 to 25. Now, that was given by God in the context of the outworking of the Ten Commandments, and it was given in the context of the civil law of Israel, that this was uh, uh, to be outworked in the law courts. It was to be outworked in the society. It was to restrict and to ban personal, unlimited revenge and individual retribution. It, it was for this theocratic law court of the Old Testament. And it's the principle on which many of our law courts are based. Punishment is to fit the crime. Appropriate punishment for the appropriate crime. Or, or appropriate damages for uh, punitive damages for crimes committed. But Christ is taking it here into the realm of discipleship into the realm of personal uh, responsibility and uh, re, uh, reapplying it and restating it um, against the Pharisees who had taken it and misapplied it in every way uh, because they took what was the truth of the Old Testament and added to it, of course, uh, in, in different ways. Uh, and so here we see Christ uh, speaking about our attitude as individuals, uh, pre presenting an individual Christian law of non-retaliation, the personal eth ethics uh, for a believer. Um, Romans twelve seventeen to twenty one. You know, Paul restates it, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable sight of all is possible as far as live peaceably with all men. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's a recognition that we don't have the right to personal retaliation and revenge in our Christian lives. And he gives uh, four different little cameos of what that means. He starts with um, 
Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Uh, a, a tremendously uh, challenging statement, um, but reminding us of uh, that we are not to return violence with violence, that we're not uh, taking it beyond the image or the illustration. We're not also to return insult for insult. Uh, and Christ is our great example. We don't return personal insults by slapping some more personal insults on people. Uh, and as, as much as is possible, uh, also not to take personal vengeance, of course, and uh, uh, revenge on people. He then goes on to speak about uh, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. I think that's in the context of being sued for something um, or the payment of a debt. And I think the principle here is, is listen, be, be generous. Uh, if, if you owe someone something, don't contest it on a technicality, but be willing uh, to give back more than, than is expected of you. And, and especially within a Christian church context, where it says, you know, in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 verse 7, we have to be willing to be wronged. You know, to have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And it reminds us of our attitude towards one another as Christians. Then the third little vignette he gives is, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Well, what does that mean? Well, it comes from the, the practice of the Roman soldiers who were able to compel uh, particularly peasants into service to carry their gear for them. So they would ask us, uh, and they only had to carry it for one mile. So you would carry uh, the, the gear of a Roman soldier for one mile, and that would be your duty under Roman law. And here, the, the idea is, is when we are compelled into service, in whatever context, we're not going to be asked to carry someone's gear for a mile uh, in the army or the air force uh, as they go on the streets. But um, it's the whole idea of not just doing the minimum required, just grudgingly. Uh, the idea, do more than what's expected. Do more than the bare minimum. If, you're a, if you were a Christian peasant in the Roman times, if the Roman soldier asked you to do one, well, walk with them two miles as well. And while you're there, speak to the guy and try and get to know him. And so there's this idea of being known uh, uh, as someone who's willing to serve and willing to go the extra mile, known as a, maybe in your rotten jobs, doing the rotten things that no one else is willing to do, and doing it well, not skiving and cheating, but working and carrying a load for God's glory, uh, and not doing it well just when we're being watched, but when nobody is watching, or when we think nobody is watching, uh, recognizing uh, God in all of these things. And the last one is, um, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse from the one who will borrow from you. And the whole context of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And again, it's, I think it's just speaking about generosity, uh, willing to lend out of love, but not in a, in a careless way, but just gener generally holding loosely to our possessions and our material goods and having a generous attitude uh, towards others because Jesus is the giver of all good gifts and because that is what he looks for us. So I think there's a gener if you took an overarching thing, there's a generosity of spirit here and a recognition that we will be wronged and uh, that uh, we will be treated badly. It's the very opposite of the victim mentality in which we're living today, where everyone's a victim. And it's a moving towards a much more generous, open, gracious attitude to the world and to the lives we, we live.
Because that's the second area. The third area is the last one, love your enemies. And this is the most obvious um, uh, twisting of the Old Testament from the Pharisees of Jesus' day, uh, where they said, you shall love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy. That was, that was never the Old Testament uh, requirement. Leviticus 19, verse 18 uh, speaks of it. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm you, Lord, I think, sorry, I think it goes on to say you shall also love your enemy. Um, so Leviticus uh, never adds uh, that you, you should love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. Uh, that was a, an additional uh, unbiblical uh, emphasis of the religious leaders of your day. But Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So this is beyond even non-retaliatory love. Uh, it is positive action in our, in our lives towards our, uh, not just our neighbors, but our enemies. So who's, who's your neighbor? Well, it's the person that's next to you. Uh, sometimes literally, but, but just, in other words, whoever comes into your experience, whoever comes into your life. Um, but we're to regard even our enemies uh, with uh, that same love. Maybe those who persecute you in the workplace, those who hate you uh, for who you are, I hope, uh, not for legitimate reasons of being hypocritical in our lives. But we are to love and to offer the hand of friendship and grace towards our enemies. Uh, we're to pray for them. It's very difficult to pray for someone and then to treat them badly. Well, it should be if our prayers are... Uh, genuinely concerned for their welfare. The philosophy of the world is to love those who love you in return. Quid pro quo. I'll love them because they love me and because they can be good for me and I'll be good for them. And, that, and, and it's the whole, if we talked about the victim mentality of the world in which we live, uh, this plays into the identity politics of the world in which we live, is that we only associate those who agree with us and who think the same way as us. Absolutely not the case for the Christian as we are to show and live a life of love for our enemies. That is, that is radically counterintuitive. Uh, if you greet only your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles or the pagans do the same. <laughs> That's the way of the world. We can all do that. And it's really sad when sometimes the way of the world comes into the church and the church acts more like an unbelieving world than it does uh, look like that we are citizens of another kingdom. And so there's much need for us in our lives for forgiveness. And he says, uh, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect here meaning uh, come to that place where you, having attained the, the end or the purpose of, of what you're doing, um, and that is a true understanding of grace when we live out grace like Jesus lives out because the greatest example of, of loving your enemies is Christ on the cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, the greatest uh, example of generosity is Jesus Christ and his life and the death on the cross. Uh, the greatest example of truth is Jesus Christ and his life and death on the, on the cross and, and all that he does for us. 
So we're to be uh, children of our Father, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. And that simply means that that makes us like Him. You know, when children look like their parents, we're to look like our Father uh, is who is in heaven. Uh, and we recognize that the Father in heaven pours out gifts onto those who believe Him and those who don't believe Him. He gives life, and He gives health, and He gives laughter, and He gives happiness to people who spend not one day in His company, who do nothing but stick their fingers up at Him, and who aren't interested in the living God, who claim to be atheists, and who mock and deride the idea of God and of heaven. He pours out goodness to them day to day. He sends His Son on the evil and on the righteous. And uh, we are to live with that same reflective uh, grace. God is loving and patient. He is also just, and one day His justice will be revealed. But as we wait on Him, uh, we are to remember the quote from Alfred Plummer, which is a very good one, to return evil for evil is devilish. Sorry, to, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human to return good for evil is divine. And that is impossible without Christ in our hearts. So, the Sermon on the Mount speaks all the time of unnatural norms, and I'm using that uh, word guardedly, unnatural in, in the, the, the nature of the world in which we live. It, it speaks against society's norms, because we belong to a different kingdom, and we have a different king, and we are citizens. And the gospel uh, is radical. And I headlined this, uh, or themed this sermon, the grace, ouch. Last week you got grace, wow. This week you get grace, ouch, because the gospel ha has, can I say, can I, the gospel, the grace has teeth, it's, it's encouraging us to act in a, in a powerful way. Um, Dostoevsky says that love in action is much more terrible than love in dreams. <laughs> we often are just loving God, the, God, the gospel and Jesus in dreams. But going out and loving this way in an indiscriminate, selfless, loving the unlovely, those who don't love in return, it is impossible without Christ in our hearts, because that is what He did to us. That is who we are. That is what we are like without His grace. How, how can we ever pass judgment on others when we know our own hearts? That, I believe, as we in a life of repentance and faith every day, that's how we will begin to get a buzz from our faith. That's how it will become more real, where we will get goosebumps. Because that's, that's what will change the world. That's what is going to change this world. And that's what's going to transform your experience and my experience of faith. It's faith that's going to be tried and tested in the uh, co-face of day-to-day -day living. That's it. It's not in here that we become strong Christians. This is where we're equipped. It's when we live it, when we test it, when we try it, 
and live Christ's way in the world in which we live. Um, so I would discourage you from looking for from some kind of magic spiritual dust to make us feel the love as we walk in the Holy Spirit, uh, an impossible dependence and obedience to Jesus' way, which is different from the world in which we live. And I think life changes for us, and we will know God's love because we will be living God's love in all the grime and dirt and mud that is uh, this world. It's undeserved love, and I, I don't think it's like any description of love we have naturally uh, from within us. It is absolutely divine, and therefore we need Him and His grace to transform our brokenness and our sin and the, uh, the reality of death in us. We need to be saved from that and redeemed and uh, live as citizens of another kingdom. Amen. We'll pray. Father God, we, we ask for your help to live this way. It may, it may become uh, relentlessly stark uh, to live this way in the current situation. Uh, it may be impossibly powerful to act with grace and with um, love and restraint and commitment and truthfulness uh, when self-preservation seems uh, to reign. Uh, We pray that we would remind ourselves of where our hope lies, like Paul in plenty uh, or in need, that we are confident and we are able to uh, be comfortable uh, and rely on the living God uh, and be content with what we have we know that that's, there's much wrestling in that, and we don't say it. And pray that we wouldn't say it to others uh, or even to ourselves in a trite and in a, uh, uh, an uncaring way, but that we would recognize that these days demand us uh, to be extremely prayerful and extremely in connect, connection with Jesus Christ learning from his truth and living his truth. Help us, we pray, to do so, and help us to help each other to do so. I pray especially today for those who are, have burdens uh, because of what's happening, have fears, whose plans have been thrown up in the air, who can't visit loved ones uh, either locally or uh, internationally for the many we have in our congregation who are here from other parts of the world and for the challenges and complications it brings into their lives. Uh, We commit all of these uh, to you and pray that we would love and support and care for one another uh, very powerfully in these days. So help us to look out, help each of us to look with shepherd's eyes and care and protect uh, all those who we know uh, and those also who we don't know. For Jesus' sake, amen.